Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Jeremy Edelman about his biography of the economist and author Albert O. Hirschman, entitled Worldly Philosopher, The Odyssey of Albert O. Hirschman. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Uh, Mark, uh, I, uh, I appreciate giving, you giving me the time to, to talk a little bit about Hirschman. My own background is very different from his. I was born in Canada and, uh, and actually was very involved earlier in my life working in Latin America, issues of development and democracy, and, and, uh, and did my graduate work in Great Britain um, and so I was a Canadian studying Latin America in Great Britain, and so became a bit of a global traveler, and uh, and uh, was always concerned with issues of how economies prospered, how they could backslide. I'd done a lot of early work on Argentina, which has always been one of these examples of a country that became incredibly wealthy very fast, and then became poorer and poorer very slowly. Um, so those kinds of questions always concern me, and they, they and the relationship between economic development and and political democracy were, were were front and center as well. And as you read about in the book, these are issues that concerned uh, Hirschman uh, intensely in his career. Uh, is that what drew you uh, to him as a biographical subject? Yeah, although I have to say, though I I have my early encounters with Hirschman many 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 years before I ever, it ever occurred to me to write the biography. Um, but I, I, there was a, I'd say in a way, a kindred spirit there. He was somebody who was concerned with similar issues with a, but with a very different kind of experience uh, behind him. I, so I was aware, most of us who work in this field of development or things related to, to, um, uh, you know, wealth and, uh, and poverty in Latin America know about his work. What we often don't realize is that there was a second Hirschman uh, who was writing more philosophical kinds of books and, and articles about um, uh, issues related to language and rhetoric and ideas of capitalism long before it ever became triumphant. And, uh, and so they were always two Hirschmans. There was the, almost the intellectual history Hirschman and who was writing about Adam Smith. And then there was the guy on the ground writing about markets and Latin America and industrialization. And, uh, and the audiences for those two Hirschmans uh, rarely knew of each other's existences. Um, then as I, as I started to learn, we can talk about this if you want, I started to learn a little bit about his own personal life uh, in a sense, a third Hirschman appeared, who was who was the human being behind all these af- well-known academic works. I have to confess that when I was reading it, I didn't even think of him as two Hirschmans. I thought of him almost as a multitude of Hirschmans. He, he seemed <laughs> to have so many different areas of, of interest, and he contributed so fruitfully to so many. And one of the parallels that stood out for me was how his uh, his intellectual uh, itinerancy, uh, if that's one way of putting it, sort of paralleled this, this life that he led. And, yeah. and I was wondering if you could st- uh, maybe talk a bit about that life, especially uh, where he began and, and, and how he embarked upon, as you described in the subtitle, the, this odyssey uh, of, of his life. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you're absolutely right. It turns out there are many Hirschmans. And one of the challenges of a book like that, for someone who had such a long life, uh, such a fertile life, but also had such, uh, you know, because he moved so often, uh, had so many different turns and twists to it um, that it, it, it almost was a story of discontinuities and reinventing himself over and over again. And we can talk about some of those examples of where he did that. But how to thread together some continuity out of out of, out of that life history was was one of the big challenges. Uh, that. I mean, it's a secret history. He was very quiet about this. Very few people knew about where he came from, um, the Odyssey. Um, he was a pretty secretive man. He kept a lot of that story to to himself uh, until very late in his life and began to, to let 
little snippets of what had happened to him uh, come out. Um, so, yes, the wider readerly public only knows of the two or maybe three, if you can find a third version of Hirschman. Uh, but once you start to excavate the word, yes, there are many variations of him. But there were things that he was playing with and concerned about th throughout his life, which is, again, the relationship between prosperity and, and, and want on the one hand and democracy and, and political belonging on the other. And, of course, it, it went right back to his very early life, um, born in Berlin in 1915. And those issues were posed almost from his infancy. Mm -hmm. He seems to have had a uh, very, uh, you know, prosperous upbringing. Uh, his father was uh, ensconced in the upper middle class. He had a, 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 a good sized family around him. Uh, and, and was that a, a uh, environment in which uh, he, he uh, flourished or was it one that he rebelled against? What, what exactly happened uh, with him in the 1920s? Yeah, you know, he was not a, re a rebel. Um, in fact, uh, he was never really a, a rebel at any point in his life. He was an iconoclast. He, he um but he was a child of the Weimar Republic, which was the regime that was born in the wake of the disaster of the First World War. Uh, and it was hard to rebel, unless you were a real extremist, either on the right or on the left. It was hard to rebel against the Weimar Republic. It was a project for tolerance and inclusion, anti-monarchical, uh, social welfare, uh, open to Jews. So here, one of the things that we need to know about Hirschman is he belonged also to a family of assimilated Jews in Berlin, uh, professional classes. Uh, the Weimar Republic seemed to uphold all of those values of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. We now know how fragile it was when it broke down after 1930 and leading to the catastrophe of Hitler coming to power in early 1933. But for Hirschman's young life, those first 17 years, the Weimar Republic was a home. Uh, and Berlin was the capital of it uh, for this, uh, one might even say, it's a, well, multiculturalism may be a, a bit extreme, but it was very tolerant, very experimental, very open. Um, and those were values that he learned and held very dear for the rest of his life, uh, even in some very dark times. So... Growing up in that milieu was very good to him, and it, one might say that he is one of the intellectual children of that Weimar uh, moment. Mm -hmm. Tragic in the end, but but he was a byproduct of it. What, one of the ways in which he uh, demonstrated that, as you put it, the, the iconoclasm but not the rebellion, was in his uh, relationship with his mother, uh, Hedda. And yeah. you contrast that with with that of I believe it was uh, Eva, the younger sister, who uh, had a had a more tumultuous relationship with her. Well, so uh, a few things we need to know. Uh, so behind the scenes, so here you have to Berlin, tolerant, open society. He goes to the French gymnasium, which is the high school. Uh, very, the, he's circulating in the intellectual elites of Berlin at the time, even as a young. As, as, as an adolescent. Um, behind the scenes, his family life uh, in almost internalized many of the contradictions that assimilated Jews faced in Germany at the time, uh, which is something that's getting a little bit more attention nowadays, which is, you know, what price assimilation? And uh, there was a, an ongoing debate about whether uh, just the limits of uh, German uh, citizenship. One of them was cast around the, what was known as the Ostjuden problem. Germ Jews who came from the East, uh, who were considered to be less civilized, uh, less cultured than the Western uh, Jewry. Uh, they'd come from the shtetl, often villages uh, from poorer parts of Europe. And the West European Jews, the West German Jews, the Berliners would look down their nose at, at the relative newcomers moving from the East, especially in response to the Russian pogroms and, and, and repression. 
And Albert Hirschman's parents came from this, these two divides on the Jewish question. His mother came from a fairly well-off uh, family of financiers from Frankfurt. Uh, his father came from a town in the east uh, and with very, very murky uh, origins. He actually hid them uh, in the course of courting uh, Hedda, the mother, and it only came out after their wedding that he had come from this, let's say, less exalted stock of Jews. And uh, the tension and, and um, uh, uh, the friction over that, what what was called in the family the lie, that he had hid his background from his wife, uh, in a sense contaminated the family and, and created this awkwardness around the Jewish question. It also seemed to have been a factor in terms of his career aspirations. He was a surgeon, but he was very determined to not just do well in his profession, but to advance himself almost as though to shed himself of that, uh, of that, uh, that stain. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And it was a classic trajectory. Medicine was one of the professions. It was high status, open to choose. Um, He was very keen to do this and he was, very successful at it until he started to hit the glass ceilings of German anti-Semitism, which is, of course, this is why the issue of the limits of German citizenship kept hovering over the family and uh, the sense of disappointment that, that, that some members of the family had in the father, Karl. Um, and the children, there were three children. Uh, Ursula was the oldest sister. Then Albert was the middle son. Uh, and then there was a, uh, a, a younger daughter uh, who was five or six years younger and therefore not as exposed to some of these frictions as the two older children were. And the two older children forked on this one. Um, uh, Ursula was very sympathetic to uh, the father's plight uh, and very critical and had very tumultuous relationship with her mother. Albert was always the one, in a sense, the the peacemaker. Uh, And this, too, is a trait that he carried through his life, trying to avoid conflict here. Um, And so on the outer world would have looked at this family as the comfortable, assimilated, uh, fairly well-off German Jewish uh, family. In fact, inside it, there was a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. Where that came out specifically politically was that Ursula became a member of the Communist Party and Albert Hirschman uh, remained in the Socialist Party, which would have been a more uh, slightly to the left of the middle of the road. Uh, and, uh, and some of those political tensions also got baked into family life, especially as the heat started to rise in the early 1930s. And as you describe, Hirschman is not just on the the sidelines as an observer. He, as you say, he's uh, he's involved with the social democratic youth movement, and yep. he is uh, not part of the street fights that you see between the uh, the Nazis and the communists. But he is definitely participating in this political uh, environment as it's reaching a boil. That's right. He, he cuts his teeth as a militant. Uh, um, you know, I don't. He was. He was not a brawler, but uh, but uh, he was definitely in the streets, handing out leaflets, going to meetings, going to rallies. Uh, uh, you know, it was a time after 1930 of heightened political mobilization. And so during the day at his French gymnasium, in fact, a lot of his classmates were also actively involved. And the divide then was whether you were going to be in the a member of the Communist Party or the Socialist Party. And there were a few Nazis in the school, too, but relatively few. And that would just spill over into the streets after school was over. Uh, so you have to imagine, again, a, a world that was once pretty staid, now beginning to come up, come apart in the early 1930s. Um, and it was ultimately his, his political affiliation that created the crisis for him in early 1933, and, and he was forced to leave. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you describe how he was having to interrupt his education. He had just started at the University of Berlin. He was beginning that. And then he has to leave not just the university, but he has to leave uh, Berlin. It's not just tumultuous for him in terms of what's happening in Germany, but it's also at the t- around the time that his father dies. That's right. His, his father dies of, of uh, 
of cancer. Again, it's one of these paradoxes uh, and, and one of the little known stories that Albert actually Albert Hirschman did not know until late in his life was that even as his father was dying, he was hiring, he was hiding a uh, fugitive Jew uh, uh, in uh, his lab at the hospital where he was working um, until he could escape and go to England. Uh, again, there are all these hidden histories of things that, that people have to keep under wraps in this context mm -hmm. of, of increasing fear and tension. And so it's a, yeah, it's a double whammy. His father dies, the center of gravity in his family, uh, he loses. He is, was very close to his father. Um, and, and, and then Hitler's rise. Uh, he did not, it, it's important to clarify, uh, leave because he was a Jew. Uh, he, uh, he, he left because he was a socialist and, uh, the political enemies, uh, Hitler's political enemies were among the first that were being rounded up and his best friend was arrested. And one of the things the Nazi police would do is, is, is get, take the address book. That's the first thing you, 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 you rip out of the hands or the pocket before it can be destroyed of anybody you capture if you're a Nazi cop. Uh, and that then is your roadmap to who else you're going to arrest. And as soon as Albert's best friend was arrested, a man called Peter Frank, uh, uh, and Hirschman found out about this, he immediately went underground. Um, and a few days after uh, his uh, father's funeral, actually, uh, leaves to Paris. And, and now he goes to Paris. It's worth saying, is you, you mentioned that he was at the University of Berlin. It's not entirely clear... We don't know. The archives got destroyed in the course of the war. We, what exactly he was doing there, we, we know he was reading classical works in economics. But there's a way in which, because he traveled a lot as a teenager in summer holidays, he was looking for an adventure at the same time. And so the flight to Paris was, he was both pushed, but also he was pulled. He was looking for something. This is also characteristic of his whole uh, of, the, of the rest of his life as well, which is he, he tried to make something out of these opportunities uh, when he goes to Paris, a chance to kind of reinvent himself because uh, he's getting a little tired of the sterile debates between socialists, communists, Nazis. He finds the intransigence of this kind of politics very dispiriting. This is a, a hallmark of his. He, he, he does not like dogmatisms. Uh, and if the voice isn't going to work very much in faced with these dogmatisms. He often takes the exit option and that's what Paris offered to him. Mm -hmm. And yet uh, he goes to Paris and he seeks to resume his education. And as you describe, and this is somewhat remarkable considering his subsequent stature as an economist, he has great difficulty achieving the sort of education that he aspires to or was beginning to pursue in Germany. Yeah, that's right. And this is, again, one of the, you know, in the course of, of my conversations with him, uh, this was often a, a matter of, you know, a gray zone that he was very uncomfortable going into, which was how much I would ask him, you know, how much do you think anti-Semitism affected your life? And, and it was a question he would dodge. Uh, just as anti-Semitism clearly affected his father's own career options when he hit that glass ceiling, the shadow of anti-Semitism in Germany, that he could not return to Germany, of course, afterwards, um, because he became a Jew by decree. And, uh, and, and then in Paris, he runs into uh, anti-Semitism there, too, because the French establishment sees a person called Hirschman coming from Germany, well, he's a Jew, an outsider, a pariah, and uh, the advice given to him. And you have to remember, by then, you know, he's fluent in French. He has uh, accent-free French. There's something he carried for the rest of his life. And something that, that, as you described, he worked at very conscientiously. Very conscientiously. He would, he, he and this is part of the reinvention, he, at certain point, was had set his sights on becoming French uh, and becoming imperceptibly uh, a, a member of, of French society. And in fact, he would, even at the worst of the repression in France, he would walk up to policemen deliberately in order to stoke a conversation to test just how much he could pass as a Frenchman to, to a French cop. But when he arrives in Paris, he's given advice. Well, you know, don't go study economics at this 
very famous uh, what you would study economics. No, no, no. People like you, and here the coding was pretty clear, i.e. from Jews, you should go to business school, which was seen as a less elite thing to do. Uh, and that's what he did. I mean, he, he just followed the advice and was utterly bored, uh, you know, learning accounting. This was not something he had expected to be able to do when he went to Paris. He had these great expectations. And so he does become somewhat frustrated early on in Paris. Those are sad years for him. Um, he has to reckon with a lot, including not being able to go back to Germany. You know, to realize that many people who left in 33, 34 did not think Nazism would last. They thought that uh, and we might remind ourselves of this nowadays, uh, that it was a bit of a joke that that uh, people's tolerance for this caricature uh, uh, a demagogue would uh, would would fade and um, that reason would return and prevail. And that's not what happened. Uh, but for those first couple of years in exile, many of them were obsessed with, well, when's he going to fall? When are we going to be able to go back? Uh, and when that becomes clear, um, it, this idea of becoming somebody else, uh, he then pivots and, and, and starts to think much more consciously about a new version of himself. Mm -hmm. And one of the aspects of this that you describe is, is, that, uh, is that he seems to train himself in so many ways of being an anti-fascist. You describe it both in terms of how he goes to Spain uh, to fight for the Republic uh, during the Spanish Civil War, but also how he goes to Trieste and he gets his, uh, that's where he eventually gets his terminal degree. And yeah. how in the, it's, he, he's, he goes from Germany to Italy, <laughs> it's the, it's the, 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 the birthplace of fascism. And yeah. you describe how he, in the he, while he's preparing for this, he's, he's learning how to penetrate through the veil of lies to try to yeah. get at the reality of, of what the of what the fascist regime is trying to fluff up and, 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 and disguise. Yes, that's right. I mean, he's ricocheting all over Europe at this stage. I mean, he goes to London for a year, uh, back to Paris, uh, you know, and when he returns from his year in London, this is the summer of 1936, uh, Shortly thereafter, his return uh, from London, and, and he's it's not quite clear what he's going to do with his life. The Spanish Civil War erupts, and and he's among the very first volunteers. Goes to in August of that uh, thirty six uh, to fight in Barcelona. Again, it, you, it, one has to remember that for many people, uh, the, the opening of the Spanish Civil War. If you were in Europe and you were an anti fascist, and he was a devout anti fascist. He, from Berlin days, uh, uh, the front finally broke open. This is what it was starting, maybe not in Germany uh, and maybe not in Italy for now. Uh, it was in Spain. And and um, and he lined up, uh, was one of the first to, to go and, and, and joined a column, fought in the Spanish Civil War, was was injured. Uh, and, uh, and again, starts to run into some of the infighting on the left that so appalled him in Berlin, the, socialists and communists unable to get their acts together in their fight against fascism, repeating the same story in Spain in late 1936, early 1937. So a wounded, depressed uh, young man, you have to realize at this stage, he's still very young. He was only born in 1915. So he's early 20, 22. Yes. That's right. So he, and he's told, if, and if you think of all of Europe as share involved in one big conflagration, he receives word that now that the Spanish Civil War has erupted, the next front is that, that's going to open up is in Italy. And he's invited to come and stay. By then, his elder sister, Ursula, has married uh, the man who will become the most important influence in his life, who's a kind of socialist, liberal his name is Eugenio Colorni, a philosopher. He's teaching philosophy in Trieste, and they invite him uh, while he's recovering in a hospital in Barcelona to come and stay with them. Oh, and besides, when you're here, uh, the uprising is going to start against Mussolini. So you're not leaving the struggle, you're just going to the next front. Uh, and that's where he goes. He spends uh, several years in, in Trieste. Uh, they're wonderful years for him personally. He does, does his PhD. He learns Italian. By now, what has he got? French, German, English, Spanish, and now Italian. And he's still a kid. Uh, 
and, and you're right. He, one of the things he, he, he gets very excited by in, in, is he's, as a kind of self-taught economist at this stage in trying to expose the lies and deceits of autocrats about economics. Because one of the claims of all fascists uh, at that time, and it remains a long legacy, is claims to being able to do things to perform economic miracles. And uh, Hirschman was always skeptical about these grandiose claims and so made it his occupation to study black markets. He was fascinated with the way people learn to bend and break rules uh, and, and defy authorities in these kind of quotidian everyday ways. And that was uh, that was his doctoral dissertation. A lot of his work was was done. And so he became an expert on fascist economics and it's it's rhetorical and reality uh, it's it's rhetorics and it's realities. Uh, that was, and that's one of the yeah. things that that you, you made clear is really distinguished him from the general tenor of, of, of the general direction that economics was going uh, over the course of the twentieth century, which is that you know economics becomes increasingly a, a a mathematically based profession. And Hirschman, while he's no slouch at mathematics, he very much is focused almost on – he's almost like a literary economist in the sense that he, he does a lot with words and, and, and ideas and how that's one of the themes that recurs throughout his work up through his uh, final work in the 1990s. That's right. That's absolutely right. I mean he, he, he always thought of economics as a branch of literature, that all of um, – the human sciences were stemmed from this one great taproot. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and even if it were mathematical, the metaphors, the ideas that give inspiration to the equations uh, all came from uh, a fundamentally literary imagination. And he never imagined himself very far away, even if he was writing equations from, from that, those origins. But there were some, also some some important ingredients to all of this one is that he he throughout his life uh he uh always theorized from the ground up i mean he would uh uh was always concerned to make sure that whatever concepts or, or theories he had about economic behavior uh were you know had some groundedness he was not a he was not an abstract thinker uh, and was somewhat skeptical of large abstract schemata that explained the world. This, after all, is what the communists had draped themselves in, right? Big models of society, stages of growth, and you had to follow some formula in order to be on the march towards revolution. He said, what? And we don't all have to fit into this straitjacket. He was always looking for possibilities, human agency, and in order to do that, you had to build from the ground up. The other feature that was very important to him was observation, that you had to, you had to have an eye and an ear uh, and a nose out for, um, for observable phenomena. And so he had a very strong empirical orientation the solutions to problems were not going to be found in in the formula. They were going to be found in what you could learn by paying close attention to people. And and he was very inspired by a whole turn in at that point uh, of Italians who were trying to make a case for a different way of thinking about the social sciences that was uh, more in tune with. Uh, let's say, uh, uh, a continental uh, intellectual tradition. And he saw himself as part of that, not so much part of the Anglo-American professionalized social sciences, which, which economics was leading the way. So when he finally does, we'll get to this, I assume, arrive in the United States, he's kind of an odd fish for an economist. He reads very different books and, and, and writes his books and his articles in a very different kind of way. Eventually, uh, he has to leave Italy. He goes back to France. And, he, and as you described, he goes back to France right on the eve of, of World War II. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about his experiences during the war, because as, as, as itinerant as his life was in the 1930s, it, it becomes much more uh, dramatically so uh, during the, this uh, six-year period of the war. Yeah, so, that, there's, so he's ricocheting around Europe, um, is you have to put him in place. He's in Trieste. Um, 
September 1938, Mussolini arrives, and Mussolini has finally, in a sense, gotten off the fence. Until then, there was much dithering about whether Italy would be an ally with England and France or whether it would ally with uh, Germany. I mean, the, the you know, London and Paris were not above striking deals with despots themselves if they could keep the right power balance and contain Europe, uh, contain Germany within Europe. Well, Mussolini gets off the fence, clearly sides himself with, with Hitler, gives a fiery anti-Semitic speech in, in, in Trieste, uh, where Hirschman is, uh, in September of 38, well, his days there are numbered, and packs his bags and, and, and goes uh, back to Paris. In fact, in these years, almost three years in Trieste, he'd been shuffling back and forth, uh, carrying messages from the Italian emigre and exile communities in France back to the underground cells in Italy in a hidden container in his briefcase. So he'd been working for the Italian underground this whole time anyway. He also thought that this did not necessarily sever his you know, collaboration with the underground in Italy, he would just continue to serve the cause, but now among the emigres and exiles in Paris. So he arrives in the fall of 1938. The storm clouds are really gathering at this stage. And uh, one of the things that the French government does, because they can see things coming, a conflict with Germany is, is, is looming. Uh, they begin to allow foreigners to be inducted into the French military. And as soon as they do that, he enlists. Uh, and this is another Hirschman trait. Whenever a front opens up and you can fight fascism, even though we think of him as a man uh, of letters, he, he if, if, if the opportunity arose to pick up a gun, uh, he would seize it. But he didn't even blink. Uh, joins the French army. And, uh, and because he's not a national, although he's applied for French citizenship, he's not yet a national, he's thrown into a regiment with, uh, uh, with a lot of other expatriates, um, and they work on repairing railroad lines. And in what's Marc Bloch, the great French historian, has called the strange defeat as the Wehrmacht storms into France in late spring of 1940. Uh, Hirschman's battalion, mainly comprised of German and Italian emigres, uh, you can imagine what would happen to them if they got caught by the German military. Mm -hmm. Their commanding officer disbands them. Uh, Hirschman buries his uh, his ID um, and and flees south into what uh, will eventually, in the summer of 1940, be called Vichy, the Vichy part of France, which is not occupied by the Nazis, but is ruled by. Uh, a regime that will collaborate with the Nazis, and he he flees to Marseille. Uh, so his 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 moment in the French army is relatively brief. He doesn't actually fight, so it's not like the Spanish Civil War. Um, uh, and, but he is a witness to the collapse of France, uh, which again he he it will, it's a lesson for him for the rest of his life that institutions are much more fragile than we think they are. And but he goes to Marseille, and he really sets himself up against this uh, tide of of fascism, authoritarianism, by participating in this very risky and yet very brave effort to smuggle refugees out. And you list some of the people he saved, and it's like a who's who of twentieth century Western thought. <laughs> Uh, that's right. It's it's uh, you know when he went to Marseille, he he didn't have an idea what he would do really. Uh, you know he 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 gets a bicycle uh, as he's fleeing the northern part of France for Marseille, and he rides south. Uh, he gets a fake ID and a new name, Albert Hermand, uh, born in Philadelphia but of French origin, um, and that's why he's according to the ID he speaks uh, fluent French, and so he's posing. When he's in Marseille with this fake ID, and he meets up with an American called Varian Fry, who's a he's trained in the classics and Harvard, and um, and and arrives in Marseille to create a rescue operation because they've heard that some of the 
well-known writers and artists uh, fleeing Germany are, are stuck in Marseille, can't get out, don't have money, don't have visas. Well, uh, Varian Fry arrives with some money given to him by a group of Quakers and Jews in New York to rescue a handful of these fugitive artists, only to arrive in Marseille. Hirschman's there to greet him uh, uh, at, uh, at, the, uh, at the train station. He's been tipped off by somebody that there's this guy coming who uh, who's, who's going to come and rescue people. Hirschman has a sense that uh, that this there might be something in this for me. Meets Varian Fry. They walk to the Hotel Splendide in Marseille, where where Fry checks in, and it's out of the Hotel Splendide that they organize this incredible operation to save hundreds and hundreds of. Um, Artists, poets, philosophers, economists, um, Hannah Arendt. Uh, I mean, it's just it's a long, long list. Mm-hmm. One of the important things is that at the time that they meet and they set up the operation, that the great German philosopher Walter Benjamin has died trying to escape Marseille. Uh, so just before they set it up, and they realize that they have to institutionalize this pathway across the Pyrenees. And that's what Hirschman does for Barry and Fry. And eventually it's a pathway he himself takes. That's right. Until when finally the Gestapo catch up with this guy, um, because he's been running the underground operation. He's been the money laundering, the getting the fake visas, all that part of it. He can do. He's got all the languages. He knows how to run black markets. That's something he's specialized in. Uh, he loves this kind of everyday form of subversion while the front of the organization is Varian Fry. So the public relations side of it, Fry organizes and Hirschman's running the back end of, uh, of it. Uh, and in that demi-monde in, in Marseille, finally the police catch up with him and he himself is forced to flee. And he leaves with a bag uh, with an extra pair of socks and two volumes of Montaigne's essays and will walk across the Pyrenees like the other refugees and make his way to Lisbon and from there to the United States. Mm-hmm. And when he gets to the United States, he it's really when he begins this life in uh, as an economist, albeit with interruptions. And I was wondering if you could start to talk about uh, both how he starts out his life in California and then uh, why it is that he interrupts it for this uh, for once uh, the, the United States finds itself in the war. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing uh, uh, just to remind uh, people is that when he goes to to the United States, he, unlike many of the refugees, goes with a visa and particularly a, a student visa. So he's unlike most other refugees. And the reason why he has this uh, student visa is because in his Paris years, from between the time that he flees uh, Italy and the outbreak of the war, he works for a team of economists who are closely affiliated with a, a, a group funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And uh, the, the, the leader of that team winds up in Berkeley. As soon as the France falls, he knows that he's had this incredible research assistant working for him in Paris, writing amazing reports about fascist economics and, and knows that there's this asset on the ground that could be very useful for the war effort and for understanding the economics of, of Europe more generally. And so he sends a note to the Rockefeller Foundation, which has program officers in Paris and in Lisbon, uh, find this guy, uh, Albert Hirschman. Well, actually, his name at that stage was Otto Albert Hirschman. You have to find him and you have to rescue find him and rescue him. But, of course, Hirschman is now parading as Albert Hermann in, in Marseille. And so uh, while the American consul in the south of France is looking for Otto Albert Hirschman uh, and occasionally dealing with a man called uh, Albert Hermann in, in the, as they concoct these fake visas, finally the consul, uh, who is a remarkable person, uh, approaches uh, Albert and says, by the way, I'm looking for this guy that I've been told we have to find a way to rescue from the Rockefeller Foundation. His name is Otto Albert Hirschman. Where could I possibly find him? 
And Hirschman smiles and says, well, actually, that's me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the console kind of laughs and says, I'm not surprised. Uh, anyway, that's how he gets the visa. He actually stays on in Marseille. Even though he's got the visa, he can leave. He stays on to rescue more refugees until he finally the police force him. So when he arrives in the United States, he's already got a ticket to Berkeley to rejoin this team of economists who are working on the state of the world economy and the depression and the war and so forth. And, and he sets up with them. Uh, and that's where he, he winds up writing his first book called National Power and the Structure of Foreign Trade, which is a kind of economic explanation for German imperialism. Uh, and, and it's at that point that he really starts to see, well, maybe I have a life ahead of me as a man of letters. I, I can be a writer. I can be an economist. I, you have to realize he's still very young and still trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life, even though he's bouncing all over the place. And as he's meditating and, 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 and trying this on, becoming an intellectual, uh, of course, in, um, in December of 1941, uh, the United States uh, joins the war. And it's another case. He doesn't blink. He, en he enlists and, um, and, uh, and goes to Washington. At the time, he thinks... Well, what's my bet? I'm a, I'm a lousy soldier, you know. Uh, I, I can barely tie my boots. Uh, I, I'm not very good at shooting. Uh, I've got a little experience. I have some wounds on me from, from the, the Spanish Civil War, but that's not really what I can offer the war effort. What he really wants to do is to go work for the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA in what's known as very, very high-level Ivy League secret operation in Washington called the Research and Analysis Branch. And Hirschman thinks, if I could just work for them, I will become an economic spy. He has this idea that that's what he wants to be. Uh, and he he tries to wheedle his way into the RAB, the Research Analysis Branch, but keeps getting interviews and then turned away. And in the end, he winds up being sent as a private, uh, first to North Africa and then serves on the Italian campaign, working technically for the OSS, but not in the RAB, rather very low down in the system, basically as an interpreter for captured Italian and German officers in the course of the Italian campaign. And uh, it's a very depressing part of the war. He loses his best friend, Eugenio Colortini, this man who's influenced him so much in Trieste. Uh, but also he's, he's, he's very depressed about what's happening. And he, he writes a very poignant letter to his wife, and uh, just as a, in parentheses, as, as Sarah, his, 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 his wife, whom he had married in Berkeley, we would, she and I would pour over Albert's daily letters to her, uh, and, uh, I, and it, which was a very moving experience. She, he was by then very senile, and, and for her, it was a way of recapturing the early days of their marriage, was to reread these letters that she hadn't read for decades, and that was very moving. But in one of those letters, he writes a letter from Rome and says uh, something to the effect that, you know, I've served in three three armies now, you know, the French army, the Spanish Republican army, now the American army. Armies crush the individual. Um, and uh, But I walked into a bookstore today in Rome, and I found this book by uh, an Austrian named Friedrich Hayek called The Road to Freedom. And he, you know, reminds me of the importance of the individual. So he was always trying to find the upside to what was otherwise a, a dreary story. But he could never join the upper ranks of the OSS. He always remained very low down. And, and the story of his, of his service to, in the American army ends in a very bizarre, shocking episode in which he's tasked. By now, the war is over. It's uh, the fall of 1945. He's tasked with being the interpreter to a German uh, uh, a general uh, called Dostler who had given the orders to execute uh, a handful of Italian-American men who had been serving behind the lines for the OSS in sabotage operations. Uh, he had ordered their execution. 
uh, and then got captured by Allied troops and was put on trial. At, he was it was the first of the war tri- war crimes trials uh, for ordering this execution because these OSS men had their dog tags on them, and so this was clearly a violation of 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 the laws of war. And Hirschman, you have to imagine him sitting in the courtroom as this man is being tried by the American military for war crimes. Hirschman is his interpreter. And so here he is sitting side by side, Corporal Hirschman, he's been bumped up from private, having to sit beside a Nazi general, exactly the kind of person he had spent his entire adult life fighting, having to serve as his interpreter in the court. When it's finally over, uh, Dosler is pronounced uh, guilty and the sentence is read out that he will be executed by a firing squad. Hirschman has to turn around and translate this to him. The courtroom has burst out, uh, you know, all the reporters there who've been covering the story. Uh, Hirschman translates the the sentence to Dosler and then collapses. Um, Everybody storms out of the courtroom Hirschman grabs his gathers his stuff and that's his last active piece of active duty what was strange about that episode was not just his encounter with the Nazi general and and this bizarre end to a horrible war but that the next day the New York Times front page story was about the Dostler trial and the photograph above the fold was of Dostler uh, being read the uh, the uh, the final decision about the execution with the young Corporal Hirschman sitting right beside him. That was the front page of the New York Times. And who buys the New York Times that day but Sarah Hirschman, who's been receiving letters almost every day from Hirschman from the front censored. She hasn't seen this man for years, her husband. She now has a daughter. Uh, uh, she nearly faints. She hasn't seen him for years, and here she sees him on the front page of the New of, of the Times. Um, this this was that w- kind of war for some people, um, and it was after that that he he sailed back to the United States and and struck up a new life as a civilian. Mm-hmm. And but he's a civilian who starts out in government service because after the war he goes to work for the Federal Reserve Board, involved in European aid. That's right. He so one of his 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 office mates, a man called Alexander Gershenkron, who was in with him in the Berkeley years. They were part of that team uh, working on the project on your state of the European economies after the war. Gershenkron is working for the Federal Reserve uh, in creating a kind of brain trust. At that time, it's very clear that the American government is going to have to be very involved in the reconstruction of Europe. And the Fed was one of the bodies that that contributed to this brain trust that would contribute to the European recovery program. And he hired Hirschman, brought Hirschman in as one of the top economic advisors to the development of the Marshall Plan in 1947. And so, yes, he was a kind of deep insider in the formulation of U.S. economic policies for rebuilding Europe. he, he that experience was both gratifying to him that that he could matter as an economist in the rebuilding and redemocratization of the world, um, but it was also very trying for him because Washington was a in those days a pretty boring city. Uh, he still considered Paris in some way his home. Sarah, whom we haven't really talked about much, also thought of Paris as home, and so they kind of yearned to return to Europe at some point. Um, by then they had two daughters. Uh, and at a certain point, slightly bored. And at, at that point also in, in late 51, it, it's clear that the ERP is working. Europe is, is now on being rebuilt, uh, that the main action of getting it all going has, has now been put in place. And uh, they begin to plan to leave Washington and move back to France. And he arranges with uh, one of the uh, a man in the State Department to be transferred to Paris. This is late 1951. And the upshot of that is the the, the way. The, so the intricacies are a little complicated, but 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 he has to go through a uh, service review. This is the height of the McCarthy period. 
and uh, civil servants are being scrutinized. And to transfer from the Fed to State Department required that he go through a security review and the flag pops up. Um, and uh, suspicion that has surrounded him uh, comes in and he is basically told that his career working for the U.S. government is over and that he would be well advised to leave the country. And so yet again, he is, uh, he, the ricochet kicks in, he, he's forced uh, to leave the United States. And that's where I, just to talk a little bit about, I, so I'd always puzzled over, you know, why, what was going on? Why did the OSS not want to hire Hirschman high up in the RAB? Uh, why did he get fired from, uh, the uh, federal government uh, in 1951, early by the time the, the boom fell, it was early 1952. Uh, and I would press Hirschman in the interviews, and, and he again, it was it was like anti-Semitism. He would dodge these questions. He didn't want to dwell on the dark side of history. And it was only when we got the FBI file on Hirschman declassified that I realized what was going on. Which is because he was a socialist and, and a militant in Europe during the 1930s, there was a suspicion that he had communist sympathies. Uh, and that FBI file uh, kind of shadowed him. That's why the OSS would not push him up the ranks. Um, that's why when the security review happened in 1951, uh, he was basically given the axe and forced uh, back into exile once more. And this is where his career takes a dramatic turn that uh, redefines the, 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 the course of his uh, life as an economist, uh, the, the course of his family's life, and, and, and in some ways helps to uh, you know, establish him as a groundbreaker in this new field of development economics. He goes to Colombia. That's right. He goes to South America. And, uh, and in fact, when he, when he tells Sarah, uh, so Sarah's in Los Angeles visiting her family, uh, in early 1952, Sarah, we're not going to Paris. We're going to Bogota, Colombia. She <laughs> screams and, and runs for the Atlas. Where is this country, Colombia? Uh, yeah, because he, back in the Berkeley days, um, uh, a man called Sandy Stevenson, a Scottish economist, has gone to work for this organization called the World Bank that was created in 1944 to rebuild Europe and was was reinventing itself because once European reconstruction was on the march, then agencies like the World Bank had to kind of find a new purpose. And theirs was development economics in this thing that would soon be called the third world. And Stevenson says to Hirschman, well, you know, we're interested in this new business of development, not European reconstruction. That's That looks like it's working out. Uh, and there's this country in South America called Colombia that's interested in being a pilot for an experiment in development economics. Uh, and we're thinking of funding a project there. Would you be interested? And Hirschman says, uh, yes, of course. Uh, get me out of here. <laughs> and yeah, they pack their bags and off to go to South America. And again, it's another one of these instances where Hirschman, the move is an opportunity for self-reinvention. So he reinvents himself when he moves from Germany to France. He reinvents himself, in a sense, when he goes from France to Italy. He reinvents himself when he moves to the United States and once more reinvents himself in South America. And yes, development economics is beginning to become a boom industry, and he becomes one of its pioneers. And it's what makes him unique is that he's not developing his ideas from his office in an Ivy League university or World Bank office in Washington, D.C. or a bank in London. He's on the ground. He, he works on agricultural projects, housing projects in Colombia for uh, uh, four and a half years and has a deep, deep empirical sense of what works and doesn't work. And so many of his concepts come from this very practical experience uh, and encounter with, uh, with, uh, uh, with peasants and small businessmen and engineers who are trying to make development work in practice. And it's from the practice that you theorize, not use theories to get people to conform uh, to them. And and that and so when he surfaces and starts to write about development from this experience, he's got a very distinctive voice, and people stop and say, "This is original thinking." 
uh, right at a time when people are looking for some original ideas. Mm-hmm. And yet it's part of this tension that you return to over the course of his uh, subsequent academic career, which is that he's this original voice. He is saying these things and it brings him all this attention. But at the same time, he never really is a good fit because when he comes back to the United States in, in, in the late 1950s, he goes to Yale, he goes to Columbia, he goes to uh, uh, Harvard. And yet, as you describe it, he never really uh, is able to uh, settle in and be the sort of, of, of scholar that, uh, that, 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 that Americans are used to. That's right. He, he doesn't fit the boxes. Um, he, he's got a PhD from some obscure university in Italy. He never really, especially when economics becomes more and more quantitative and formal model building, he likes to tell stories. He uses aphorisms and metaphors, and he's the source of some great aphorisms and metaphors. And he's aware that economics is moving in a direction that's catching him out and at a certain point, in fact, when Rockefeller gets him the visa to go to Berkeley, they tell him, you, you need to train up. Uh, t- t- we want you to get a, a, a Berkeley PhD, in fact, and, and to become a quote-unquote real economist. Hirschman decides not to do that. He, he's going to write a book. Uh, with, and he uses numbers, but not very in a very sophisticated way. He then... He's tempted again. He goes to the Rand Corporation, which is an important outfit that's doing a lot of new experimentation, quantitative techniques, and formal model building on strategic questions. One of his, uh, you know, he's, he's got a number of close friends at the Rand, and he thinks, well, there I will learn these new techniques in modern economics. But again, he gets the siren call. I want to write this book or this article about something else, and 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 besides. This fetish for the numbers and a quantification is missing something, and I need to continue to keep my voice going on that. And and so, in a way, economics and Hirschman part ways, even though he always thinks of himself to his dying days as, as an economist. He self-identified and was very proudly thought of himself as someone who worked on and thought as an economist. But But... At, at odds. And we would call him now uh, a kind of political economist, an economic philosopher. Uh, he doesn't fit the, the, the categories very well. But that's, of course, what makes him unique and, and original. Why people go back to him now is they try to rethink some of the principles of the discipline itself. And I think it's also a testament to his impact that he does, he is so broad because the works he produces later in his life, uh, the passions and the interests, exit voice and loyalty, the rhetoric of reaction, they're not the typical works of an economist. And if anything, I think that speaks in a lot of ways to their, uh, to their uh, impact and, 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 and their draw. Yeah, they, they aren't. They are not typical at all. And yet, if you if you read them, you can hear the voice of the economist. You know, things are about trade offs. It's uh, trade offs between voice and exit and loyalty. Uh, trade offs between passions and interests. He still thinks of people um, as uh, as as juggling different kinds of what economists would call preferences. Um, and um, and so he still approaches basic human questions as as we are basic we are reasonable people trying to as they would say optimize between different objectives. Uh, he doesn't think the solution to the problem can be found in equations. However, he thinks it's 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 still a, a humane problem and. And then becomes wrapped up with language and other things like that. So he, but but if you you can hear the economist trying to speak to the public or to philosophers uh, in their own terms. It, uh, in many ways, he's the pioneer of the free economics movement. The idea that we can we can analyze all of human behavior through the the tools of economics, but we're not going to do it through quantification. We're going to instead talk about patterns and models of behavior, which is yeah. on one level what econ- economics is really all about. Well, in, in a way, he was very early on onto the, he, he he fastened onto the behavioral thing that people 
this idea that Homo economicus is a simple being always trying to maximize utilities was naive. He never believed in that. That was hogwash. And he was always looking for complex counterintuitive ways in which we did things. For instance, how failure could breed success, how uh, exit could strengthen organizations. Uh, he was always, he looked for quirky ways around problems that was rooted in a complicated idea of human behavior, not well, you're either rational or you're irrational. Get beyond that binary way of, of thinking. But at the same time, so one would one turn would say, well, he's an economist speaking to many other kinds of issues from love to death. But at the same time, he was always trying to embed uh, economic matters into a broader sense of what makes us human passions and desires uh, and that you couldn't just put an economic uh, lens onto social problems in order to solve them, that economists needed to be talking to philosophers and poets uh, if they wanted to come up with uh, you know, common solutions to shared problems, uh, which, was, which was a trademark of his thinking. One of the things that surprised me a little, uh, given what you describe of Hirschman's somewhat unorthodox career as a leading economist, was that he was in the running for the Nobel Prize in economics, uh, but ultimately didn't get it. And I was wondering if you could uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. And, and, and it, it surprised me a little bit to read how you described that he was a little disappointed not to have uh, received that prize. Yeah, so um, there had been rumors uh, – I'd say starting in the mid 1970s, he really had written a series of blockbuster books and essays at a time in which development and, and thinking about the problem of development was really reaching its peak in, in the economics profession. And, uh, but he was always an unorthodox thinker. Uh, and, uh, and because the way the award works through nominations and approval by uh, economists, he was always thought of as a dark horse candidate. But there were rumors swirled around him every fall when the announcement would be coming out. The question would be posed, would Hirschman meet be among the winners? Um, that reaches its peak in 1979. The, the, the Nobel Prize is given to two development economists neither one of which was him. <laughs> and uh, he, and, and many people included, well, that's the year they were going to give the award to development economics. Um, and they'll move on to other sorts of things. By then, issues of development had started to become a problem and development economics was in decline. So this was a kind of epitaph to the whole subfield. And yes, Hirschman is disappointed. He is, you know, I, I think you have to imagine that, that, that uh, first of all, he, he like uh, many Homo sapiens, he's he, he, you know he's vain enough to feel a little caught up in the rumors. That wouldn't it be nice to win this incredible prize? Uh, um, he doesn't talk about it, but uh, you know his wife certainly knew that he, there was a little apprehension in the lead up to the announcement of the prize and and certainly many of his friends thought in 79 when the prize went to other two other development economists that that was it and um and that the campaigners for him to get the prize had lost uh he then writes a a, a, a idiosyncratic and a little bit bitter account of the what is what he calls the decline and fall of development economics as a as in a way, parting gestures to the field that he had helped reinvent, create from the 1950s onwards and moves on to other things and writes his next series of books are much more about uh, democracy and capitalism, um, openness of our cognitive styles and language and others. He moves on from straight economics at that point uh, as, as whether that was really because he was disappointed in the prize, you know, it's hard to say, but they certainly coincided. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Um, 
So it, it, it's, it's a book called Earth Hunger. Uh, it's uh, a book about how we learn to think and agonize over, uh, th- think about and agonize over interdependence across long distances from uh, the middle of the 19th century to the present, how the world became increasingly globalized uh, that we also worried and thought about it from the very beginning. Um, and uh, that interdependence has been a problem. It's not just of Brexit and Trumpism and so forth, but we've been agonizing over it for a very long time. Um, and uh, so we have some some ways of thinking, some habits of mind of thinking about interdependence that have been forged by this by these traditions as we think about markets and resources and now increasingly climate change. And as it turns out, the, the, the questions of scarcity and limits to growth uh, have fueled a lot of this global thinking from the 1890s forwards. So that's what the book is about. It sounds like a fascinating book. Thanks. Well, I look forward to uh, reading it. Uh, so don't let me take up any more time so you can get back to it. Uh, Jeremy Abel, thank you very much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark.